For our scripture reading, we turn to two passages of scripture. We look first at Acts chapter 17, read a portion of what took place during Paul's second missionary journey when they came to Thessalonica. We take note of what he preached there and also the reference to the opposition that he faced. And there's reference to that uh, opposition in the first chapter of Thessalonians. And the text we have will come out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So we first read the first 10 verses of Acts 17. Now when they had passed through Amphibolus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ, And some of them believed, and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they had found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people, and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. And now we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we see how it makes a reference here to, on the one hand, there were those who believed. There were those who turned to God from idols. And yet there was also much uh, opposition. And that there, even in the midst of that opposition, there were those who received the word. And we see reference to that in this chapter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul and Silvanus, that is Silas, and Timotheus, that is Timothy, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. 
For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. As ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost so that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So far we read from the Holy Scriptures this morning. And the text we considered this morning consists of the last part of verse 9 and verse 10. How ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Dearly beloved, in our Lord Jesus Christ, In the studying of the subject of mission work and the spreading of the gospel to the nations, we undoubtedly take a close look at the book of Acts. And we consider the work of the Apostle Paul and those that went with him as he went forth and and was preaching the gospel as directed by God. And it is also good in connection with that to take note of what is said in the different epistles of Paul and putting them together with the different places that Paul visited. As we do that, we see we receive instruction concerning what Paul preached when he went on the mission field, both from what is mentioned in the book of Acts and what we see in the different epistles. For he's writing to these young, to like in this case, a young congregation, he's writing to them, and the, mat, the subjects that he brings up, And sometimes, in the letter, he makes a reference to things that he taught them when he was there. So then we know that he taught this when he was there, and he's also bringing it up in the letter. We receive instruction concerning the things, the centrally important uh, doctrines that he brought forth as he went forth in the work of missions. We also see some of the problems he encountered and how he dealt with them. And there certainly is a reference in 1 Thessalonians, for example, and 2 Thessalonians, to a matter he brought up with them when, they were, when he was there. There were some difficulties. So he speaks, and at the beginning here, he speaks how he remembers their work of faith and their labor of love and the patience of hope, but he also warns those that are going in a wrong direction and brings it up repeatedly saying, I, I mentioned this when I was there. And he speaks of it in First Thessalonians and then in Second Thessalonians. So we see 
matters that he dealt with and how he dealt with them. And it's good for us to take note of that and to receive instruction from that. So we look to the Word of God, and of course not just the New Testament, but indeed all of the Scriptures give us instruction concerning the spreading of the Gospel, the calling that we have to bring the good news to the nations as God directs us. One of the things we take note of as we read about what Paul preached as some of the fundamental points he brought out concerning the, the suffering and the death, the resurrection of Christ, and concerning his return. That's one specific point I'd like to bring out, is that it is interesting to note how many times Paul brought out the truth concerning the return of Christ. He often mentioned it. We see it in here in this chapter. This chapter speaks of how there were those that turned to God from idols and they're waiting for his son to come from heaven. Now they've heard about that. And they've heard about the wrath to come. And it says Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come, and in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, if someone was going to do a study on eschatology, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, eschatology being the study of the last things, well, we not only go to the book of Revelation, we not only go to Matthew 24, but 1 and 2 Thessalonians are key books that speak in some detail about the end times, which indicates also how important that was in his instruction. Looking at it from the viewpoint of missions, he spoke often about what we'd call eschatology. Giving instruction about Christ's coming back and about how there would be punishment for those that did not turn. And also about what's mentioned here, that Jesus delivered us from the wrath to come. We receive much instruction as we look at what Paul has written here. Some of the things to take note specifically as we go through this, this specific passage is on the one hand, the fact that there were those that turned to God from idols. Not just to read that, but to think hearing about people who turned to God from idols. And hearing about that turning, saying these people were worshiping idols and now they're serving the true and living God and thanking God for that. And take note of that, that this passage, Paul is thanking God. We give thanks to God for you all. He's thanking God for His work. And he brings that out too. Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. He's speaking about the work of God and giving thanks to God for His work among these people. And we go forth in the consciousness that God will accomplish His purpose. There will be opposition. As there was when Paul was there, and then it, here they're here, they're, they're immediately, they're, Paul and, and, and Silas are, are moving on. 
after in that time of opposition, and it's certainly that these letters indicate that for the saints that remained there in Thessalonica, that it was difficult. But the Lord strengthened these saints, and the Lord upheld them, and Paul thanks God for them. And then applying this to ourselves, on the one hand, there's three subjects we look at here, the turning from sin, the waiting for God's Son to return, and the fact that we are serving, that we're serving God, that waiting doesn't mean we're inactive, we are serving, joyfully serving God. Now we see that this is a reference that the Thessalonians were, they were sinners like we are, yet it was the case that by the grace of God they did turn, they were waiting for God's Son, and they were serving the living and true God. Well, then we apply that to ourselves. On the one hand, the subject of us turning. For we understand that this is to be an ongoing turning from sin in our own life. Secondly, the subject of waiting. and Living in the consciousness that Christ is coming back and waiting, longing for Him to return. And then lastly, that we are serving Him. And that we joyfully serve Him. That we delight to serve our God. We say our only comfort in life and death is that we're not our own, but belong to our Savior. So we look at that, this text from the theme, waiting for God's Son from heaven. We consider, first of all, the genuine turning. Secondly, the patient waiting. And then thirdly, the, the, joyful, the joyful service. First of all, with regard to the genuine turning, it's good for us to consider briefly what did they hear? What did you, you know, the, the thought that you, some people are worshiping idols and then they turn from idols to serve God. And the question is, what did, they, what did Paul say to them? What, what, was, what did he preach to them? And a couple of points, a number of points that we see. First of all, his preaching was about God. The true and living God. In, distinct, in, in, in contrast with the idols, he speaks about the true God. True meaning as opposed to fictitious. The true God. The one who is the maker of heaven and earth. That he preached about God. We often say that preaching should be theocentric, that it should be about God. Well, that's what he preached about. He preached about God and about God's works. He preached about the living God. God is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he has fellowship within himself. And he works in us to know him. So certainly when we talk to those that are worshiping idols, we're going to talk about the true God, the Creator. And then also that idea that we have fellowship with Him. God has fellowship within Himself. He works in us that we have, fellow, that we have fellowship with our God. Communion, that covenant fellowship with God. We hear Him talk to us. Our God 
talks to us. We talk to Him and He hears us. And we know He hears us. We have fellowship. We walk with our God. With the living God who gives us life. And to know Him, to know His Son, Jesus Christ, is to have everlasting life. So we speak about, about God. Secondly, we talk about the Messiah, the mediator. We speak about Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. They're waiting for him to come back. Bringing out that obviously he, they, he spoke about the mediator. The constant preaching of Christ. Christ crucified. He preached Christ. In fact, in Acts 17, it says when he was preaching in Thessalonica, it says he opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered. As he's preaching in a synagogue, he brings out to them that the Bible speaks about the Messiah. Well, it says that the Messiah, Christ and Messiah are two words for the same thing, meaning anointed one. That it's the Bible says the Messiah, the Christ, is going to suffer. He must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. And this Jesus whom I'm preaching to you is the Messiah, is the Christ. So he spoke about Jesus, Christ, God's only begotten Son, our Lord. And talking about the things that, the points that are mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. As an example. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. These points, when we look at specific things we, he mentioned, we can see many times we see that these things that are mentioned in that creed, how these are summarized, these are points that Paul would bring out. God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, and so on. In fact, the practice of using the Apostles' Creed and going through it phrase by phrase long precedes to, with those from outside explaining to them the truth, going through the Apostles' Creed, phrase by phrase, that practice long precedes our Heidelberg Catechism. For example, in the days of Augustine, which was long before this creed had been used, a creed like uh, the Apostles' Creed or a very similar creed has been used, was used for a long time before the Heidelberg Catechism was written. And then when the Heidelberg Catechism was written, that was brought in. Now, of course, there had been great departure from the truth. Well, now in the time of the Protestant Reformation, that practice of using the Apostles' Creed to go and going through it phrase by phrase was brought right into the, into the Heidelberg Catechism. And that's how we teach our children. We not only preach it in our churches from week to week, but the children themselves go through it at a level that's easier for them to understand, going through those fundamental points of the, the gospel. 
Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate? What is, why did he die by crucifixion? His resurrection, how does that profit us? His ascension, how does that profit us? What does it mean that he's coming again? To judge the, the living as the judge of the living and the dead. What does that mean? These fundamental points were points that Paul preached on and points that were summarized in the Apostles' Creed, which of course is so early, the date of the actual origin of that creed isn't even, as far as I know, isn't even known with certainty. It goes way back, it goes certainly before Augustine. But the point is that a creed like that was used, this is the point, a creed like that was used as a means to teach those coming from outside, or in our, you know, in our case, including then also the children and all of us. We continue to preach through that again and again. And central, a central important truth that was brought out was the truth about the forgiveness of sins. We talk about preaching Christ crucified. We preach about how he suffered and died for us. And that all those who believe in him, all those who turn to God, who confess their sins, believe in Jesus Christ. God says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. To speak to sinners, talking to them about their sin, and talking about how God, there's forgiveness. There's forgiveness. There's cleansing. Blood of Jesus washes away our sins. How important that is to teach that. And of course, that's in the Apostles' Creed too. I believe the forgiveness of sin. He spoke also about how God accomplishes His purpose. And we see that when in the beginning of this letter he makes a reference to the subject of election. Some people might think you don't mention election. Certainly not very early on. He writes this, and this is a young congregation, and he's writing it right in the first chapter. And he says, knowing, brethren, your election. So he's not just speaking about election in general, but he speaks to the church and he says, knowing your election. And then he doesn't explain it. He doesn't say, what do you mean by election? He doesn't, he, he doesn't explain it here as if, uh, as if he would need to go into some detail right here to explain to them what he means by that. It seems to imply that they already had heard something about election, that they know what he's referring to, one would think. But the point here is, he certainly, without a doubt, it can be said, he preached about God's sovereign decree of election. Unconditional election. He spoke about efficacious grace, unconditional salvation spoke about the work of the Spirit. He makes a reference to the Spirit. We talked about God, the Father in our creation, God, the Son in our redemption. We talked about the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. 
In 2 Thessalonians, he says, God, he says that God has, quote, chosen you to salvation. So he brings up election in 2 Thessalonians. Chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. So he spoke to them about sanctification, about the Spirit and sanctification. We hear the gospel, Philippians 1, he makes in a, in a different epistle, he makes reference to how faith is a gift. In Acts chapter 11, we read that God's people knew that repentance was a gift. These people repented, and Paul's thanking God that repentance is a gift of God. Our salvation, in short, is all of God's grace. And then, it's also true that there was the command to turn. You know, we have a number of references in our creeds on the subject of what we would refer to as missions in a number of places, it appears. For example, Canon 2nd Head, verse 5, says, talks about what we're to preach. And it says we're to preach the promise and the command. The promise and the command. Not an offer and a condition. Some people will speak of an offer and a condition. But no, we speak the promise and the command. The unconditional promise and the command to repent and believe. Canons 2.5 says this promise together with the command to repent and believe ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons promiscuously and without distinction to whom God out of his good pleasure sends the gospel. So in preaching the word, we do so in the consciousness that we must always call to repentance. Repent and believe. Turn from idolatry. Well, there's the blatant idolatry of bowing down to a visible idol of wood and stone. But we understand, as our creeds say, that idolatry is to contrive or have any other object in which men place their trust. And Colossians 3 verse 5 says, covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness. Do, do you see covetousness in yourself? I see it in myself. And you do as well. Covetousness is idolatry. When we see that, when we hear that, we recognize that, sin, that command, thou shalt not covet, and points out our own sinfulness. So we recognize with regard to all the commandments that we have violated all of them and we constantly need to hear the command to turn. Now the fact that there's this command to turn indicates that the preaching is to be antithetical, speaking against false doctrines and against sinful practices. So there's both the setting forth of 
doctrines that are taught that are not true and stating what the truth is against over against it. But then there's also the reference to sinful practices. Blatant other, you know, various blatant violations of God's law and applying that in general and in particular. Turning from sin. Genuinely turning. Turning from sin to God. Somebody might be Somebody might turn from, say, the sin of drunken, stop getting drunk and yet not turn to God. There can be a kind of an external turning of even an unbeliever at times. A person may be getting drunk and seeing what's happening to his life, and he finally decides, I'm not going to get drunk ever again in my life. And maybe he doesn't. And yet he doesn't, he doesn't turn to God, though. Well, that's not a real repentance from sin. It's just an external turning from a certain practice, turning to, you know, stopping a certain practice. But this is talking about a genuine turning away from sin to God. The true God. The living God. With sorrow for sin. And in our life, our life must be one of a constant turning from sin. You think of the things that are mentioned in the Lord's Supper form. That we're to come to the Lord's Supper as those who have laid aside unfeignedly, that's genuinely, all enmity, hatred, and envy. Now we hear that, we know that. We hear that Lord's Supper form so many times that if somebody quotes it, the words come to our remembrance, laid aside unfeignedly, all enmity, hatred, and envy. But then we... You and I always have to apply that to ourselves. Is it the case that I am angry? Do I have sinful hatred towards a brother? Am I bearing a grudge against a brother? And because this person did this or said that, do I use that as a justification? Do do I say, so therefore it's all right for me to be continuing to hate him? To bear a grudge against him. Day after day. We have to come as those who have genuinely laid that sin aside. For real. You think of the sexual sins. For somebody to come and worship Lord's Day after Lord's Day. And they're not turning from the sin. They may continuously request forgiveness, but with the intention to keep doing it. That a person thinks, I'll do it again, and then I'll just confess it, and I'll do it again, and I'll confess it, and say, oh, I'm trying to stop, and then they're doing it again, confessing it. Somebody that's walking in sin like that, and just thinking, oh, I'll just ask God to forgive me. I'll go ahead and do it again. That's not genuinely turning from the sin. Or to be genuinely turning. Anybody here that is not turning, the exhortation to you personally is turn. Turn from sin to the true and living God. And of course, all of us, this is an ongoing thing. It's not only somebody that may be for a while blatantly walking in a sin, but every one of us We have temptations. We have this battle constantly. 
And we hear God saying to us, to you and to me, turn from that sin. Every time you have any kind of a sinful thought, turn from that. Confess the sin. And look to God for the grace. And we're thankful for the grace that he does give to us and also to us at, at every age. Not only the children and the young people, but adults, even the elderly. It's a constant struggle. And we're thankful for the grace that God does give, the strength that he gives us in the battle. So first of all, there's that genuine turning, then this waiting, patiently waiting, waiting for Jesus. They were turning from sin to God and waiting for God's Son to come back. Waiting for Jesus, and that name we know, Jesus means Savior or Jehovah's Salvation. They were waiting for the Savior. And we know waiting has that idea of longing for Him. Expecting Him to come. That you know He's coming. You're eager to see Him come. An example that people have given before is like a woman waiting for her husband to return from war. How she'd be longing. She'd be thinking about it all the time. And of course, in that case, she wouldn't know for sure if he was going to come back. But in our case, the church, the bride of Christ, we, as members of the, of the church, which is the bride of Christ, we long for Christ to come back and we, we know he will. We have no doubt that he will. Because God tells us. We know he will come from heaven. Now, you believe that. Yet if somebody was to say to you, how is that really possible? How is it possible that Jesus could come from heaven? People think we're believing in some fairy tale. How is that going to happen? And say, do you, do you honestly believe that? And we say, well, I don't. In fact, I know he is. Well, how do you know that? How can you say that? Well, God says so. And you believe it. You have no doubt about it. God has worked in you faith. You have no doubt that he's going to come. You have no doubt he was raised from the dead. On the third day he was raised from the dead. That he ascended. His hands up and he's blessing them. And he ascends up into heaven. In the sight of the uh, 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 disciples. And you believe that. That really happened. He's going to come back. And like the Thessalonians, we're waiting for him. We're looking forward to him coming back. The one that's coming back is the one whom God raised from the dead. Now it's interesting that when it speaks of us waiting for God's Son to come from heaven, it mentions whom he raised from the dead. And One might wonder, why does he add that phrase? That, that is an interesting, good question to ask as we go through a passage is not just to look at a passage, in a phrase in isolation, you know, God, that just at the idea that God raised Christ from the dead. Well, why does he bring it up here is an interesting question. And in that connection, it's also good to note that Paul in the beginning of his letters, this is interesting to take note of when we read Paul's letters, 
in the beginning, when he thanks God, he often, it's typical at the beginning of his letters, he thanks God. And then he mentions a number of things while he's doing that. The things that he mentions often point to things that he's going to bring up in the letter. So you can often see a connection between the things he mentions at the beginning with what is going to be brought up later in the letter. He's going to talk about the return of Christ in the letter. Jesus was raised from the dead, and that's related to what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. If Jesus was raised from the dead, and he's our head, he's going to raise you and me. There's a connection between the resurrection of Christ and your and my resurrection. And he's going to bring that out. He's going to speak about the resurrection of Christ. So when we're thinking about Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, coming back, we're also thinking that the one who was raised from the dead is coming back and he's going to raise you and me. We're going to be raised from the dead. If we've, if we've died before Christ comes, we know there will be some that are alive all the way to the point that Jesus comes back. We're looking forward to that. Romans 8.23 says, We're waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. We're waiting. We're looking forward to that. Jesus is coming. Wrath is coming. This passage talks about the coming of Jesus, and it talks about the coming of wrath. It speaks of the wrath to come. Wrath is coming. And then we think of what's not only what's happening now, but also what's going to happen when Christ returns. The wrath upon those who refuse to turn. Now that idea of the coming of Jesus and the coming of wrath are connected. Paul preached about how there is forgiveness and that those who confess their sins, that they're comforted, those who are looking to God, believing in Jesus Christ, they're comforted, told their sins are washed away. But then there, it is also said to them that those who refuse to turn and who walk impenitently in sin, the judgment of God. The coming judgment of God. The judgment even now. But then also pointing forward to what's happening, what will happen. Well, this idea of the coming of Christ and the coming of wrath are connected. In fact, in the book of Revelation, where we, that verse that we often quote that talks about how people will say to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, that's in Revelation chapter 6. And reading that, verse 16 and 17, it says, They'll say to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That puts it together. Wrath and Christ, and the coming of wrath and coming of Christ. It speaks of the wrath of the Lamb, the Lamb being Christ. Hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? 
Now, Paul speaks about that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 as well. So not only in the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, but in the beginning of 2 Thessalonians. He speaks about the coming of Christ and the comfort that we believers have, knowing he's coming, our deliverer, but also the judgment upon the impenitent. He mentions both. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 and following, To you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. There's the comfort to the believers. And then he goes on in verse 8, In flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They may have the gospel preached right in their midst, yet they obey not the gospel. They walk in penitently in sin, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction. That's how he begins 2 Thessalonians. So both of these ideas are there. The comfort for God's people and, and also speaking about the coming judgment upon those that do not turn and then constantly exhorting people, turn, turn from sin to God, to the true God, to the living God. And there were those these Thessalonians did and they were waiting. They were waiting for the deliverer. They were waiting for the one that delivered them from the wrath to come. Which delivered us from the wrath to come. So you're putting that together. You have to think, it's important for us to think about the wrath to come and then to hear that Jesus which delivered us from the wrath to come. That is a great comfort to the persecuted saints. The Thessalonians were persecuted. And God's people, God, Scripture says that those that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. They will. This letter was written in part to be a comfort to the, it was to be a comfort to the saints in times of persecution. And it's also a comfort to us in whatever trials we go through. Like when a loved one dies. Or in the afflictions of the body that we experience. In all the sorrows that we go through in this life, which is a valley of tears. Our mind... So often, the Spirit works in us to remind us of what God has promised. And we think about Christ's return. And you recognize that in yourself. I see that in myself, too. How many times in difficult times, not only when things, go, when things are going difficult, but also in, in, in times when things are going well, in either times, how often our mind by the Spirit works in us to remind us about the return of Christ. And we live in the consciousness of the fact he's coming back and that we look forward to what's going to happen when he does. 
And as far as our afflictions are concerned, we believe what God says in Psalm 34, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And you know this verse. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And then the last part of that, but the Lord, Jehovah, the Lord delivereth him out of them all. And we think on that. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He will deliver me out of them all. He'll deliver you out of them all. And what joy, what gladness we have. And so thankful for the mercy that He has shown us. And we're patiently waiting for Him to come back. Looking forward to that wonderful day. That that will happen. That day will come. What we read of, all the events that we read are going to happen on that day, that is going to happen. And we're comforted knowing that the one who's coming back is the one which died for us. Who laid down his life for us. Which delivered us from the wrath to come. Believing that, waiting for him, we're to be serving him. It's not like an inactive waiting. It's not like somebody that's doing waiting in the sense of doing nothing, just waiting. But we're active. We are waiting for him to come back. He has work that he has called us to do in this life. And we are serving Him. It says these people turn to God from idols to serve Him. And that word for serve has the idea of being owned. That He owns you. He owns me. And not in the sense of forced service. That one doesn't want to have to do something, but it's forced because somebody owns them. But it's the idea of delighting to serve. Total belonging. Total devotion. Total submission to His will. When we say that our only comfort is that I'm not my own. I'm not my own. I belong to my Savior. It's my only comfort in life, in death. My only comfort. I'm not my own. I belong to Him. I know that I belong to Him. Well, the last part of Lord's Day 1, of that first question, that is, says, the Spirit works in me. He assures me of eternal life. I know. I'll live forever with my God. The Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. 
to live unto him. We live in a time where there is so, such selfishness. Selfishness. And God said people would be lovers of their own, their own selves rather than lovers of God. We have that selfishness in us too. And we see that. And we confess that with sorrow and ask for forgiveness and strength to fight it. But we also say, this really is true of me. After all, Lord's Day 1 is not just a confession of what God does in His people, speaking of in the third person and not applying it to me personally. But when you and I confess Lord's Day 1, we say the Holy Spirit assures me. He not only assures other people, He has assured me. Personally, that I have everlasting life. He makes me sincerely willing. Not just other people. He's done it with all, in, in, his, in all of His elect people. He does it. And I'm one of them. He's made me sincerely willing and ready to live unto Him. That's what I really want to do. And I'm sorry for my sin. And I want to glorify my God. I want to serve Him in all of my life. And you make that confession. From the heart, you do. You mean it. The Spirit worked in these Thessalonians that they were serving God. He's telling them that. You, by the grace of God, have turned from idolatry. You really are serving Him. And it did show itself in their speech, the Thessalonians. They talked about the Word of God. In verse 8, it says, From you sounded out the word of the Lord. Those waiting for Christ to come back, looking forward to Him coming back, serving Him, those who were loving the Lord, delighting to serve Him, well, they were talking about Him. And it was the case that people in other regions heard about it. That's quite something. Now you think of, you know, this is, you think of this as, as being, if you're thinking of the church, think of the church in Thessalonica hearing this. So here, this is a church. We gather for worship back then. Now the church in Thessalonica, years ago, hearing, and this is the word of God to them, that from you has sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia, which is where Thessalonica was, but in Achaia in another region. But also in every place, your faith to Godward is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. That's quite something. The people had heard. The word of God sounded out from them. And it is important that the Word of God sound out from us. And now we get back to the subject of missions, the whole idea, 
how important it is for all of us personally to be witnessing to people near or far. Could be somebody right near us. Could be somebody that we know living a distance away, even in another country maybe. But bearing witness to the truth, sounding out that word of the Lord, joyfully serving Him, that it be evident to others. We want it to be evident to others that we joyfully serve Him. We delight gathering together for worship. Twice on the Lord's Day we do. And we delight to do that. We delight to commune together. We look to God for the grace to increase in our love for one another. In contrast with all the fighting today. All the hatred and envy and fighting. To look to God for the grace to that we may increase in our love for one another. And we may know that we're genuine Christians as they see the love that we have for one another. Doing our daily work in the home, in the school, in the workplace, heartily as to the Lord. And not unto men. We desire to set forth an example. A godly example. Paul said to the Thessalonians in verse 6, Ye became followers of us and of the Lord. So they were following, they were imitators of them and of the Lord. This is written by Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Ye became followers of us and of the Lord. And then in verse 7 he says, Ye were examples to others. Ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Now you think of hearing that. That's what they heard. Ye, your examples. You were examples to everybody that believes in the area. In Macedonia and even in, in Achaia. And our desire is that we would show a good example. And that we show our gratitude to our God. Our love to our God for all he's done for us. May the Lord bless us. The Lord has blessed this congregation. And I'm thankful to God for this congregation. It's a joy to be able to worship with you this morning. May the Lord continue to bless you, continue to strengthen you, and to use you, to use our churches for His glory. And we desire to get to know His saints in other places, in our own country or in other lands. And may the Lord guide us in the work of missions, our personal witnessing and our, worship, and our mission work as churches May his name be praised, for he is worthy. And may we encourage one another as we together are waiting for God's Son, for Jesus to come from heaven, our Redeemer. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God and our Father, we give thee thanks, O Lord, for thy work within us and within our children, within thy people from generation to generation. Lord, strengthen us in these last days. We do desire, O Lord, to praise and exalt thy name. We are so thankful for what thou hast done in us and all thy people. Forgive our sins, deliver us from evil, and may thy word go forth with power to the nations and accomplish thy purpose. For Christ's sake, amen.